Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Choose Inclusion. Thank you all for joining us again uh, for our Black Voices Matter segment. We uh, we always appreciate it, and we hope you're you're learning as much as we are. And when I say we, I'm talking about my dear co-hosts, Nina and Mike. How are you two this morning? I'm doing okay. How are you all? Doing good. Thanks. Excited good. for today's guest. Excited. Yeah, uh, me too. And, um, you know, we're, we're really lucky that um, Travis and Stephanie reached out to us. So Travis Stovall is... A uh, couple of cool things. So he's co-founder and CEO of a, a company called Erep Inc. Um, and then he's also just announced his candidacy for mayor of Gresham, Oregon. So uh, we, we're going to get into you know all of that um, on this conversation. But first of all, welcome, Travis. And how you doing? Doing excellent. Thank you so much. You be for uh, for the uh, for the opportunity to share here. But I'm doing well. Uh, broadcasting live here from Gresham, Oregon. And Mike, you love you've you've been to that area, Mike. You you, I, you, you and your family have traveled up that way. We have lots of family up in uh, from Vancouver, British or uh, Vancouver, um, Washington, which is in the southern end, right across the Columbia River from Portland. So about ten miles away from where uh, Travis is right now, but love, love, love the Northwest. Awesome. Well, so, so Travis, I, we, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit last week and I think, you know, one of the things, like I said before, we've been learning so much, um, just about black history and, and, um, black lives matter and the black community. And, and I think that's super important, um, uh, because I, I know in a lot of conversations that I have with family and friends, they don't know a lot. Of, of what's been happening for hundreds of years. Um, but one of the things that we talked about was um, about you growing up in a red line community in Kansas. Like I grew up in the same area and again, no idea. What, what is that? What is that? What does that mean? What is that concept of a red line community? Uh, great question, UB. It, it, you know, it starts with just the understanding of kind of how systemic and systematic discrimination was and the challenges that exist in that and the and then the follow-on generational challenges that then are fraught from something like the redlining concept so uh back you know in the mid 1900s uh you know as you get to the 1940s and 50s and 60s uh there were there's situations where where the real estate community real estate agents realtors uh, what they would do is, is draw a red line around certain communities within cities. And these communities would then be considered redlined. And what they would do is say that you could only sell a house to a Black person within these specific redlined communities. And in those communities, various types of, of, of community investments did not happen. So we would consider that to be a disinvestment into these areas and regions. And so many things were, uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't say not allowed, but so many things were absent in these areas of redline communities, the, the investments into education, the investments in the parks and uh, community type resources, those types of things uh, just didn't happen in these regions in these areas. And so it's, it was this focus on congregating blacks within these certain redline communities and thus not allowing them to access 
you know, many of the things uh, that our non-minority counterparts had the opportunity to access, you know, such as uh, real estate in nicer communities, more urban uh, settings, and then more, and then of course, more suburban settings, uh, which those were considered uh, off limits uh, for, for African-Americans to be able to move their families to. And there's a myriad of stories of, of the horrific things that sometimes would happen if that was, if that was attempted. And so when I grew up uh, in the inner city of Kansas City, Kansas, uh, in this red line community, I, of course, growing up, we didn't know it because we didn't, we weren't able to kind of compare it to what our non-minority counterparts were able to access and, and, and vision. Um, and so we didn't even understand truly the challenges that we were existing in and the things we were missing out on, uh, just opportunity. When you think about when you think about just opportunity, much of it is tied to our zip code and where we live, access to various levels of education, access to employment, access to social circles, all of those things and many of those things are highly impacted by our zip code. And some people think, well, Travis, come on, how, how realistic is that? Well, when you think about just a simple concept of getting a job, many times the, the, the person making the decision says, well, this person lives too far away from our location. And that was many times the case because the professional jobs weren't in the communities that were redlined. They were in our non-minority non communities that we didn't have access to because of the time it would take to get there and the concept of, well, they won't be able to make it uh, to work on time or they won't be able to make it to work consistently. And so these are the many things that are subtle in their, pre in their initial presentation, but have deep deep, deep impact. And so that's a challenge because ultimately it's very difficult to break out, to break out of the cycle when that's the case. I'll, I'll just finish by commenting on this one quick thing. My parents, my dad bought the house uh, my parents still live in almost 50 years ago and he paid about $5,000 for it. Today that house is worth about 35,000. So if they sold it, they could buy um, a, you know, kind of a middle of the line average car. Uh, so clearly there's, there, there's a challenge there uh, because there's no, there's no ability to move up in the concept of real estate. And they did everything right. They worked two to th sometimes three jobs uh, to provide for the family, stayed in the house, had that foundation, and still have very little to show for it at this, uh, this juncture in their lives, uh, which is challenging to consider. I mean, I have I think a an important point to bring up because I think that there's this falsehood of the, the, the American dream where if you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, you, you can get ahead. And, and, you know, there are these systemic issues that are, that make it impossible for certain groups, particularly the black community. And this isn't by accident, this is very much in, in its design. Um, and I think one of the things that we always are told like, uh, is like, oh, buy a house, that's, that's your opportunity to, to generate wealth. Home ownership is your way to generate the wealth you need to kind of grow and move forward and pass something down to your kids. I mean, how did, it, how did this impact like your journey into kind of your career, um, kind of growing up in this and, and seeing these inequities? So again, it goes back to access. And that access is one of specifically, especially for me, you know, you don't, so many things are built upon social circles. 
And those social circles allow for access. I always say it's who you know that gets you in and what you know that moves you up. And so there's some opportunity once you get in, but you have to get in. And so many times we don't even get the opportunity for entrance into the conversation uh, because we don't have the connections, the contacts, you know, those things that really begin to give us opportunity. But then once we essentially have that open door. So if you work hard, you continue to be persistent, you might get that open door. Well, when that door opens, you still don't have the type of resources your non-minority counterparts have. Nina, you just mentioned something critical, and it's this concept of generational wealth. The the production of generational wealth can be, you know, can absolutely give individuals access and opportunity, but it also can give them an an unfair advantage in the sense that um, if I don't have the opportunity to, to access the same type of, the same type of investments, the same type of the same type of returns that my non-minority counterparts have access to, then that's going to put me at a significant disadvantage. So my, my, my non-minority counterparts could refinance their home and start, and start a new business and take that to the next level. And it's this, it's this compounding effect that goes on and on and on. Well, as I just referenced, my parents couldn't refinance their home and provide for me uh, much of anything because their house still isn't worth much. Uh, and it's 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 a nice home. I mean, it's nothing it's nothing special, but it certainly is 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 something that's been well taken care of over the years. They've made and they've made investments into the house and all of those things. And so those types of things are limiting in regards to my opportunity to step into this space of entrepreneurship, uh, which is challenging in and of itself to be an entrepreneur, but to be a black entrepreneur, uh, just you know the, the difficulty explodes exponentially. Because again, of the access that we don't have, starting from where I started from, uh, but my eventually my parents saw the in, the inadequacy of of the in, the inner city school system and took us out and commuted us out to the suburbs, uh, and that's where we actually went to school from about seventh and eighth grade on. So we had access now to a different ecosystem, uh, which gave us much different exposures to opportunities. And that's, you know, I tell people all the time, that is what absolutely made the difference for us, where there's four of us children and three of us now hold master's degrees, which I believe master's degrees are in America are held by a single digit percentage. So just a single digit percentage of people hold master's degrees and three of my, um, of my siblings, me included, hold master's degrees uh, out of four, and that's that's a pretty impressive accomplishment that my parents, you know, worked hard to allow us to to move forward. And I love the saying, you know, people say, well, if you got, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and I always say, well, you have to have boots to be able to have bootstraps. I I I love I love it, Travis, and I'm hoping this next question uh, really proves to listeners just how qualified you are for the, uh, upcoming mayor race. So I'm predicting a win here, but, um, going back to the red line district concept, uh, isn't it true? Like that red line district concept also then created very predatory lending practices that, um, was very zip code based and were also very, um, that uh, they were financial instruments of oppression. I'd love to get your take on that. So, yeah, Mike, yeah, you, you, of course, nailed it. Uh, the Color of Law, you know, that's one of my favorite books to recommend. 
because it just does a great uh, job of bringing a cogent argument to this this type of conversation. So Richard Rothstein, I mean, he doesn't he he says it. He goes, "I'm just going to give you the outputs of the research. Uh, I'm not going to bring in you know my own personal bent on this." He does that in the appendix, but out throughout the book, he just gives the data and, and, and the information. And the thing that he references and highlights is that at, at one point in the mid you know, 1900, uh, there was a, a kind of a focus of the FHA, the Federal Housing Authority, to not allow blacks within the community, the red line communities to access mortgage insurance. And without mortgage insurance, we couldn't get traditional mortgages which completely nixed us from having the opportunity to do the things that we're talking about based on purchasing a home and staying in that home. And so we actually, uh, being, uh, of course, uh, African-Americans, again, I didn't exist, you know, during the height of this, uh, but, you know, my parents did and my dad would have been under a similar, uh, a similar constraint where they actually had these hybrid financial instruments where you could purchase the house on a contract and you actually didn't build equity. So you made the payments every month. Eventually, if you missed payments, then actually it would just take the house back. If you sold the, if you, if you sold the house um, before the contract was done, you actually did not build equity in that home. And so the house was not, you didn't have any opportunity to control the house as an asset as we do with traditional mortgages until the house was completely paid off. And that was generally over a long period of time. Of course, seeing interest rates uh, that were significantly higher than anything that traditional mortgages were in because they were considered more risky. Uh, so those were, I mean, there were, there's a myriad of, of predatory lending that went well into the 1990s and 2000s. If you do a quick read of the, of the mortgage debacle that happened, of course, within 2007, 2008, that led to the Great Recession, uh, Blacks were significantly significantly more harmed throughout all of that than the non-minority counterparts because of uh, the predatory lending that was done in these communities uh, to, to get folks, you know, excited about maybe purchasing something and then maybe getting into something they didn't understand or appreciate. And uh, many saw their homes, uh, you know, foreclosed on in those situations. And folks will might say, well, Travis, shouldn't they just be educated? Well, it's difficult when we don't have access to all of that information and data to be adequately educated and make the right decision. Well, and and I mean it, this, and this goes even beyond mortgages. I mean everything. Every and this is where the systemic aspect of this, like it's threaded through insurance and um, you know just everything you can think of, and and that's that. That was my point earlier that the white community. They don't, they don't know, right? I mean, I, I choose to believe that most just don't know that that exists, that insurance agents would put codes on people of color's applications to hand to the underwriter to indicate, hey, this is a person of color, don't grant them this. You know, that, and, and that kind of, I mean, it's just, it's, and to your point, like this, this wasn't, you know, before our lifetimes. This was up until now, still. Yeah, there's still not a lot of protections <laughs> that came out of the 2007 housing crisis for the communities, unfortunately. Absolutely, and, and, and of course, UB, as you referenced again, I mean, we go back to 
the concept of our zip code. I mean, they don't even really have to have to place the code in there to identify in the race or ethnicity of an individual. They can do it just by looking at the zip code, and that and we know that that zip code is predominantly African American, and so you're relatively safe just by like, okay. You know, if you if if this zip code shows up, there's a 10% premium on their insurance, not you know, on their house, on their car, you know, on all of these things, which again causes a premium and a penalty to occur on the financial households of African Americans. African Americans have 10%, 10% of the household wealth as our non-minority counterparts. 10%. Uh that's uh, that is when you hear that, it's just you think that is such a just uh, such a travesty um, to to have that wealth disparity and have folks say, "Well, there's no there's there's no reason why we should be thinking that African Americans face any type of discrimination." That that to me that's that's a little bit mind boggling to understand the disconnect between kind of this that one statistic: African Americans have ten percent of the wealth that our non-minority counterparts have. And a lot of it's based on, of course, generational wealth and the aspect right. that once you have the ability to have something that compounds, it's very difficult to catch up because the compounding right. gets greater and greater. So one of the things, I think it's really interesting that we're talking about the finance component, especially mortgages and loans and things, because there's this concept of approval and disapproval, right? And Travis, you had talked about that to us, about kind of the constructs built around approval and disapproval are the bedrock of why discrimination exists today. Can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I smile because it's just, it's so, um, it's so rampant within our society and our communities and our country uh, of this approval, disapproval construct. And so, so much, of what we do in life, what we don't have access to, what we have access to is about kind of the approval, disapproval context. I mean, almost everything we, we want to take part in, you think back to something very basic. Let's think back to the concept of joining a country club. Joining the country club has a significant process of approval, disapproval. And so this approval, disapproval then allows for us to either overtly discriminate or to quietly discriminate. And, and so historically, joining the country club was overt for women and minorities. It was overt. It was just well known. You can't join this. You can't join this country club. And well, at the country club, if you were in business, that's where a lot of business was done. So then you're nixed out of all of this additional opportunity that comes with being in that social circle. And so you, I mean, that's that's a very simple uh, kind of example of this concept of approval, disapproval. Well, that that actually permeates everything we do in our society is approval, disapproval. And it's usually the dominant culture, power for majority that controls north of 90 percent of all the approval, disapproval. And so when we think about this idea of what we're able to access as minorities, as uh, Blacks and African-Americans, we have, we must go through, we must go through uh, kind of this gate of approval, disapproval, and it makes you nervous. I mean, when I, when I know that I'm going into a new situation 
that I have to, that, that I'm going to have to deal with, I get nervous because I'm, I, I say, well, am I going to have, am I going to get approved for this? And it's fascinating because sometimes I can go through a process where the person or the individuals making the decision, the approval, disapproval, have no idea of my race. And it's a much different, much different process than they, if than if they do know my race. And, you know, I've, I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know it's real. Uh, and it's just something that just many times surprises you as you have these experiences but it's what allows for, again, this overt discrimination, but also this subvert or quiet discrimination that occurs just absolutely all the time. 1% of all venture capital is, is you know, and of course, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I built a company. 1% of all venture capital goes to black founders. The approval, disapproval, you know, so a major portion of, of growing and building a company that scales is truly related to getting access to capital and somewhat inefficient capital, which venture capital is. And so having access to that, uh, that, that capital is critical to see the type of growth that we have the opportunity of seeing. And when only 1% of, 1% of venture capital goes to African-American founders, that's challenging, but we exist in the space of approval, disapproval. So we don't get to play the entrepreneurship game at that level because the approval, disapproval is in place. Uh, my company has traction. We have talented people. We have business. We have customers. And still, every time I meet with venture capitalists, I get told, well, you got to get one more thing. You got to get this next thing. You got to get this next thing. And it's an ever, it feels to me like an ever moving uh, kind of target that we need to meet. But again, we fall under the approval, disapproval concept that uh, we must go through the power of majority to achieve things in life. I, and, and to me, this screams, Travis, of, again, I, I, this goes back to how many of the black community even, you know, understand the venture capital because of access, because of, you know, is that education teaching them about entrepreneurship? I, I, I just feel like there's this, it's, it's a, it's a circle here. It's very cyclical. And um, it, it then like, what are the numbers? You probably know the numbers of, of uh, the black community that run for, for office, like public, public office uh, leadership roles. Like what are, what are the numbers there? And, um, and please, I'd love to know, like, uh, I'd love to hear more about your, your, your campaigning right now. I, I, uh, we, we need, uh, I, the country needs, uh, I think true leadership like you in public spaces. So I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about this and, and the numbers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, another great question, Mike. Uh, actually, I don't have the numbers. Uh, my team has actually been looking at some of this information, specifically in Oregon, but across the country, uh, to look at what is, you know, what's the access that we have. Uh, very quickly, you know, you know, during this current con this conversation of social injustice, uh, many people have asked me, Travis, what can we do? And I always say three things. I say the first thing is to educate yourself. Educate yourself on kind of the, the black experience here in America. And you don't even have to go back to slavery. I mean, I, th I think you should, because you need to understand the atrocity that was, that, that was slavery in our country. But I say, go back just 50 years, read the color of law, understand what's happened in the last 50 years and many of our current lifetimes. Next up, I say, 
defend with your voice. So utilize your voice to defend what we have to do as a country to move forward and ensure we have a more just future. And then lastly, I say amplify the voices of the disadvantaged, amplify our voices. And that's what uh, running for mayor you know, gives me the opportunity to do. It allows me to get my voice amplified and lean into and provide leadership you know, for our city that's going through some struggles. You know? And so that's really what, this, what my passion is, is about making sure that our city moves forward, our voices are heard, similar to, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna overlay this concept with uh, something that just recently happened, you know, as you know, the, the mayor and the Gresham, the mayor for Gresham is more like the board of directors rather than uh, the mayor doesn't run the city, we have a city manager. And so it's, it's kind of board of directors and something similar that I was just added to was the digital trends board of directors. And this is the amplification of voices. Uh, so I, uh, you know, Digital Trends, phenomenal company, one of the largest independent media companies in, in America, and they recently added me to their board of directors, giving me the opportunity and ability to amplify my voice and lean into that organization so that inclusion and equity is not just something that gets added to the, to the handbook or added to the initiative, like we're going to do this, but it permeates every decision because it has to. We have to look through the equity lens. And so, you know, similar to running for mayor, you know, now, and this just recently happened, and now I get an opportunity to, on, on the, in a private sector company, join that board so I can lean into and, you know, have conversations and discussions that, again, aren't about overlaying, you know, some initiative that's going to feel like it's added to the conversation, but it's going to permeate. Similar thing uh, for, this, uh, for the mayor of Gresham. You know, it's really having the opportunity to permeate many of the decisions and conversations that we have to ensure that equity and inclusion becomes something that isn't an also as, but it, it, it is part of the core conversation and discussion and is included in that. So we've got about 110 to 111,000 citizens. And so that's a pretty good sized city uh, that we have to lean into. And the prior mayor who stepped down recently because his concept was, I want to ensure that I, I, I step out of the way to allow someone who has lived experience to step into this role and help guide our city forward. And so he said in his resignation letter, the best outcome for the city of Gresham is if we elect Travis Stovall as our next mayor. So that, that the endorsement doesn't get any better than that. A well-loved 14-year mayor here in the city, Mayor Shane Bemis, uh, said that as, as he in his resignation letter. So that's a powerful, powerful endorsement in a way that someone in the powerful majority is amplifying the voice of the disadvantaged. I mean, oh my that, goodness. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah, I just, all I want to say is fantastic. That is so cool. Yes. Well, and that's, I mean, what, what an example. And I think that, you know, because I, you know, I challenge all people, all white people in, in positions of power to think about, you know, like, Hey, had things truly been equal, then what would I be in this position that I'm in, right? Like it's sort of a daunting thing for, for, for us to think about, but, but since things are the way they are, the example uh, that previous mayor is, is showing here and stepping aside and realizing, you know, yeah, it, it's time for someone from this community with this voice to lead us is huge. And I think, I, I think more people need to do that. More 
people need to stand up. I mean, we're sort of seeing it a little bit on all man, all white boards of companies where people are giving up their seat for a person of color. And th that's how I think change really starts to take hold is we need to see that kind of action. So I, yeah, I, I, Travis, man, this has been such an amazing conversation. We're excited um, for your, for your mayoral candidacy and um, you know, anything we can do to help obviously like, but, but thank you for, for today. I mean, I just tremendous conversation. If uh, so, after you win, um, can can we be the first podcast that you come on? <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, for those who are with me along the path, you know, it's really about making sure that we 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 circle back and uh, have deeper conversations. So for sure, let me know. I would I would love to I would love to return. But by, by, by the way, Travis, I'm kind of in sales, so I want to make sure I close the loop. Okay, buddy. So <laughs> <laughs> always be closing. <laughs> always be closing. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, again, Travis, thank you so, so much um, for everything. Nina and Mike, as always, thank you. And uh, audience, you know, thank you for continuing to tune in. We're going to continue bringing Black voices to our audience to, so we can all learn and grow and, and choose to change together. So check it out, chooseinclusion.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, soon to be Amazon prime music i think um and yeah we'll keep coming at you so thank you all very much uh and take care thank you guys thank thank you. thanks travis thank you very much <laughs>